This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Before I start, just so that I get a sense of, of the audience, anybody a practicing uh, acupuncturist? Or We have one. Good. Okay. I'm sure you'll have some thoughts and some comments. I think um, <clears throat> before I even start... You know, you could put 100 acupuncturists or Chinese medicine physicians on a podium and you get 100 different versions of the truth. And that's because it's a uniquely um, personal relationship to the work and the medicine. It's not something that's simply handed down in a book to be wrote, memorized. It's actually your own relationship to the medicine changes over time. Um, you can't be the same. If you're actually doing the, the healing, you can't be the same person over time because the healing, the work itself changes you. Um, anybody had acupuncture? Oh, good. Okay, so you're all quasi-believers. Anybody gone back for a second appointment? Well, that's good. That's encouraging. Okay. Um, very good. So, um, And I think we have a couple of people who are probably very... Uh, educated and versed in classical Chinese characters and symbols. And, and I'm going to apologize, please. I'm going to really mess up the pronunciation of every single Chinese expression or word that I use. Okay, so uh, I apologize. I, you know, if I, if I could go back, um, I might have finished allopathic medical school, but I would have gone straight to, to traditional Chinese medicine practice. Sorry? Allopathic, good question, right? Allopathic, everybody know what allopathic is? So this is a really good question, allopathic medicine. It's actually a question that I like to ask my medical students when they first uh, do rotation with me. And it torment, I love to, it, tor- it torments them. <laughs> and I say, so imagine I'm an, an, a Martian and I'm coming down to Earth and I land my, 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 my spaceship and I say, who are you? And they say, well, we're medical students. And I say, oh, what's medical mean? And they say, well, you know, we're studying medicine. Well, what is medicine? Well, you know what medicine is. No, I'm from Mars. Oh, uh, well, uh, we, they say, we well, medicine's making people better. What does that mean to be better? I mean, they weren't enough to begin with? No. And then we eventually get to the point where they actually have to confess they actually don't know what kind of medicine they're training in. And then I reflect to them, isn't it interesting that you would commit the best years of your life, go through medical school and residency, and you don't even know what the underlying philosophy is of this practice. You know, so essentially allopathy describes treating with opposites. Allo, opposite, pathos, suffering, right? So um, the most of modern medicine is based on the application of the scientific method to treat bad things with the opposite. So we're antidepressants, anti-inflammatories, anti-nausea, Right? We don't have many things we stand for, right? So it's a really good question. I think, you know, the moment that people become aware of the fact that we are allopaths, it really begins to refine the issues around the, both the strengths and the inadequacies of the current dominant medical paradigm. So <clears throat> where was I? Um, let's, let's, let's begin to talk about... Um, Taoist or classical Chinese medicine. Um, you, you can see I, I have a lot of letters after my name. I could actually add a few more, but I thought that would make things even more confusing. Um, and the reason I put that up is because I want to just demonstrate how utterly confused I have been throughout my professional career. 
Um, and I've gone from one thing to the next. And people might say, so people look at my CV and they either say, oh dear, or they say, how exciting. <laughs> you know? And, and it's, I started off, you know, in medicine and then I did uh, uh, internal medicine and then I did radiology and then I did psychiatry and then I did neuropsychiatry, behavioral neurology and then I went into palliative medicine and then I said, well, I'm going to do some integrative medicine. Um, and all the way of saying that every time I felt that I was figuring out what I was trained in, I realized how many inadequacies there were to my toolbox and so I needed to add more things. I, I can honestly say that in the classical Taoist Chinese approach, I think you have just about every possible tool in your toolbox. And if you can add a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, you pretty much got the whole thing, right? Um, although there are stories of, of even today, of, of uh, Taoist practitioners in China who can mend broken bones with talismans and with their breath. So who knows? whether we even need orthopedic surgeons. So, the, al- the alchemy of healing, I'm already getting way behind schedule here. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to get through all these slides, because as I started to do this, you know, more questions lead to more questions. Um, so this slide, pretty much, we could just stay on this slide for the entire hour and a quarter. Um, and it, it, I think it pretty much describes everything we're going to talk about. So, he who knows all the answers has not been asked all the questions. Confucius. So, um, for me, the question that started this conversation that I'm having today was quite a few years ago now, I, I was experiencing tendonitis in my shoulder. Tendonitis is an inflammatory condition of the shoulder. There's no known cause. It may be associated with diabetes, minor injuries. And uh, so I went to see my friend, Kevin, who was one of the world's experts on shoulders. Um, I said he made me wait for 45 minutes in the in the waiting room, and then he sent me for an X-ray. And sure enough, he said, "That's what I thought. Nothing there." He says, "Well, you don't want to have this." I said, "What is this?" He says, "It's a frozen shoulder. Nothing we can do. Take some Advil and come back in two months, and uh, you know maybe we'll put some steroids in there." It just wasn't satisfactory. I was really in a lot of pain, and I wasn't sleeping. So my wife, who's a feng shui consultant, she said to me, why don't you go to see Dr. Zhu? Dr. Zhu was working in Connecticut, and he was a fifth-generation family's fifth-generation practitioner. So I went to see Dr. Zhu, and I walked in, and he did the most exquisite examination of my shoulder, really examined it. And then he said, okay, first we need to move your shoulder. I said, yeah, good luck, it's stuck. He says, okay. He leans down, does something to my leg, which I later learned was called bladder 34, and then started moving my shoulder around. I'm going, you're not supposed to be able to do that. My shoulder isn't supposed to be able to move. And so it got me questioning what had just happened. And I went to see Dr. Zhu several times, and my shoulder got better. When I saw Kevin on the corridor, and I said, hey, Kevin, my shoulder got better, Chinese medicine worked, he said, oh. Not possible. And about six months later, there was a study actually that demonstrated that um, acupuncture is very effective for frozen shoulders. So, you know, what defines us is not so much, you know, the answers that we have, but the questions. I wanted to start off by this um, statement just to avoid any confusion. What we currently call traditional Chinese medicine is not traditional Chinese medicine. Um, the current practice of medicine, most of China, and most of the world now is actually more of a biomechanical reduction of the old tradition. And uh, unfortunately, many of the old and wise Taoist practitioners were 
at least persecuted, if not put to death, by the Maoist regime. Um, and one of the inter- and it almost disapp- the, the tradition almost disappeared completely. But one of the interesting things is that, in a weird way, actually the West is now in the process of reviving and rediscovering these traditions. It's really quite remarkable. And it started with Jesuit priests and people like Joe Helms and John Worsley who found fragments of this and brought it back to the West with them and were allowed to talk about it. And so um, if I use TCM, I don't really mean TCM. It's a slip of tongue. Taoist medicine, classical Chinese medicine. Okay. So um, it, this, we can date the beginning of this, at least in recorded time, sort of, is with the yellow emperor, and the, word, and the color yellow will become significant to you in a little while. And he was a mythological figure who, maybe mythological, who was three to almost 2,600 years before Christ, before the Common Era, right? He was supposed to be around. And he had a, he was supposed to have had a conversation with Chibo, who was a, um, what's called a mythical physician. He may have been real. But Chibo actually um, had a conversation with the, um, the Yellow Emperor, and Chibo was supposed to have been receiving divine inspiration about healing. Um, and so they put this, this was eventually put down in a book form, in writing form, about 2,300 years ago in this famous book. And basically the book has two part, broad parts to it. The first is the simple questions, and we're going to spend most, pretty much all of our time on the simple questions. Things like, what is yin and yang? What are the five seasons? How do the seasons affect us? And then the second part of the book was called The Spiritual Axis, or the Ling Shu, which not only talked about how to actually practice it with needles and moxibustion and diet and things, but also talked about more of the spiritual aspects that had been first laid out in, in the first part of the text. So, uh, the uh, Yellow Emperor, well, somebody asked Chiba, I, think, I guess it was the Yellow Emperor, um, I've heard that in ancient times the people lived to be over 100 years, and yet they remained active and did not become decrepit in their activities. But nowadays people only reach half that age, and yet they become decrepit and failing. Sounds like us, right? We get to about 50 and it's all like patch, patch, patch after that, right? And we go to the anti-doctors, anti-inflammatories, anti-depressants, anti, anti-reflux, right? Um, is, he, says, is, he says, sir, is this because the world has changed from gener- generation to generation? Or is it maybe because that mankind themselves is becoming negligent of the laws of nature? I, I think, which one would, first one or second one? Yeah, I mean, intuitively we kind of know that, right? I mean, human beings haven't changed. And further on in the, in the, the Suen it says, in peaceful, calm, void and emptiness... The authentic chi flows easily. Essences and spirits are kept within. How could illness possibly arise? Now, that may not make a lot of sense to you right now, but hopefully by the time we've had this conversation, it'll make a lot of sense. Chibo said in ancient times, uh, those people who understood the Tao patterned themselves upon the yin and the yang, and they lived in harmony with the arts of divination. And so what he's telling us there is that, you know, it's not that the universe has changed. It's not that nature has changed. It's our relationship that's to these things that's changed. And what's so remarkable about Taoist practice, philosophy, and their medicine is that's really a pathway back to harmony, right? Da De Jing, it's a pathway back to 
harmony and right relationship with ourselves and with each other and with the universe. That's what I find so exciting about it. So what are the characteristics of Chinese medicine? And we could talk for a long time about this. Um, Heimer Fruhoff, who is a remarkable teacher up in Portland, um, he has a website called classicalchinesemedicine.org. Um, he works at the National University for Natural Medicine, has written a great deal, and uh, describes the characteristics of Chinese medicine, are that it's concerned with holism, with energy, with relativity, and complexity. That's why you can never really master the art because it's all relative and it's working with changing energies and relationships and it's extremely complicated. All right. So I mentioned a little bit about allopathy and it's good that you asked that question because that sets up the, the stage for what's the difference? I mean, why bother? Why bother going back to explore traditions that are thousands of years old? Why not just you know, go do what we're doing? Well, I think you know, the bottom line is that it ain't working that well. I mean, it works as miracles, right? We said earlier, the miracles of science can produce miraculous things, modern medicine, but most people are feeling a little dissatisfied. They want a little bit more than just having anti-stuff. They want to actually feel good, right? They don't want to have an antidepressant. They want to be pro-happiness, right? And, um, of course, we're seeing right now that in our physicians and all clinicians, we're seeing tremendous burnout, you know, the burnout rate is almost three-quarters now. The majority of physicians want to leave practice. The suicide rate among physicians is double that of the general public. And one study found that's almost six times the amount of suicide in female physicians. So, you know, I always say that not only are we not transforming the shadow of our culture, we're actually intensifying it. Um, and I do think that working with these models of ancient traditions can bring us back, and I don't see burnout as a disease. I see it as a rite of passage and a necessary birth canal to something greater and more meaningful in our work. So allopathy deals with materialism, right, with things you can hold. Nothing will drive a modern doctor crazier than if you can't see it on an x-ray or see it in a lab result, or, right? Psychiatrists, are com we're comfortable with that. Yeah. But less so. Less so. And I think in a few years, even that, we'll have MRI scans and stuff, and we won't want. If we can't see it, it doesn't exist. Chinese medicine physicians work with energy. They see the manifestation of that energy as just a secondary consequence. It's the energy. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but you know, modern physicians are actually stuck in the old Newtonian model of the 17th century or so. We're living in the world of cause and effect, right? A plus B equals C, all right? We have, that's because we use a scientific method, and the scientific method needs to break things into pieces. You know, there's two derivations of the word science. One is um, of science, which means knowledge or knowing, which sounds pretty good, and the other is like a knife, like a saber, cutting, reducing things, right? And so when you do a research study, for example, you need as few variables as possible. You know, if you have more than three variables, you're probably not going to get your study funded. Even maybe two. The perfect study has one variable. Okay? And human beings don't live in a world of one variable. We live in a world of complex ecology, right? So we live in this quantum world where it's all about relationship in Chinese medicine. Um, allopathy is scarcity-based. There's not enough health to go around. There's not enough years to go around. 
Kildner Radner said, um, I need to get the bastard before it gets me, referring to her ovarian cancer, right? So we live in this world of scarcity. There's not enough to go around, fear-based. We better get the, get the disease before it gets us, right? And the doctor's the heroic figure. Uh, in classical Chinese Taoist approaches, this is a world of ab- abundance. We all have this inherent capacity to flourish. We just need to remove the obstacles. There's actually nothing wrong with us, you know, ultimately. We just have to discover our own way to balance and harmony. Um, modern medicine is focused on the time and the location, right? Uh, classical Chinese medicine lives beyond the ta- time-space continuum. Difficult to get our arms around. Modern medicine lives in the world of the object of the third-person quadrant of Ken Wilber, the scientific objectivity that can be measured, manipulated, and reproduced and understood in the same way by everybody. For the classical Dao's physician, everything is subjective. Even observing the experiment is subjective. Heisenberg told us that with his uncertainty principle, right? So I showed the slide because I just put it up there that to remind, just to emphasize that we're all part and in balance and in relationship with this greater thing we call life or the universe. And this is, this is a website, joedubs.com. Here's some really wonderful images on there. And here he has an image of the sun and the moon and the earth. And, you know, I, I practice Tibetan Buddhism and, and Hindus as well. We have 108 beads on our mala, right? Sacred number. Well, guess what? 108 moons go together, make up the size of the Earth, and 108 Earths make up the size of the Sun. It's pretty mind-boggling, right? And we could, there's, if you go to Joe Dubb's website, you can find these symmetries throughout the universe. And of course, there's fractals and there's Mandelbrot's fractals, and so we're all manifesting each other. It's really just a question of scale. That's all it is, and our relationship to the larger whole. And Leonardo da Vinci caught this as well when he said, the workings of the human body are an analogy of the workings of our universe. That we operate on the same principles as the universe that we inhabit. Isn't that exciting? That we're not alone, we're not like this meaningless drops of matter floating in a meaningless void. We actually, we actually operate on the same principles as the sun and the moon and the stars. That's so exciting to me. You know, as a little boy at a Catholic school, I, I once said to my teacher, my divinity teacher, Father, I'm, I'm confused. I, I'm not sure why God has to just live in one man's body. It seems that he, he or she could, is everywhere. And he, I, he became enraged and said, My God, boy, you're a pantheist. I said, What is a pantheist? He said, That's what you are. You're, you're a devil. And, and, you know, I mean, this is the thing, right? we're all inhabiting the same energetic embrace that we call life in the universe. So, excuse me, here's the the Big Dipper. And uh, if you look at the Big Dipper, it actually rotates through the sky, through the air, through the four seasons. And so the Big Dipper is the kind of the guide star for for the Taoist practitioner and and an external manifestation of our internal and interpersonal relationships. And, and, the, and the belief in this really wonderful poetic way is that a human being comes into existence at that moment when the Big Dipper dips to a certain point and drops just one drop of stardust into a human soul, a human heart. And here is the image for the human heart in Chinese, in, in classical Chinese. You can see that you have the, the outside, you have the wall of the heart, 
and then on each side you have one of the made the input vessels and the outputs are aorta and the vena cava. And in the middle you have a dot, and that dot is a drop of starlight that enters our spirit at that moment of, con- of conception. Right? We are containing the universe. So what I'd like to do is now show you a very short one-minute video of a recent discovery about what happens at the moment of conception. And maybe you can see some analogy between this and, and what I just described as the Big Dipper dropping a dot of starlight into our heart. So basically this is a, um, this is a recent discovery um, from an in vitro fertilization lab. And as you know, it's often quite difficult to get fertilize an egg and they're not sure which one has been fertilized. What they discovered was that um, at the moment that an egg is fertilized, there is an emission of light. There it goes. Do you see that? Um, that spark of life. It seems like science is proving ancient wisdom, that something actually happens at that moment when something moves from an inanimate object to a, an inhabited sentient being. Well, we can play it again. Um, there it is going off. There it goes. There's the flash of light. So, interesting and really poetic and inspiring, right? But it's not that inspiring if you're just a chemist who's looking at some ovum and saying, interesting zinc reaction. You know? Depends on our relationship to it. So, you know, the bottom line of today's talk is that actually the heart is the center of our experience. It is the heart of healing. It is in the human heart that we create music and harmony and balance with ourselves and with the universe and with each other. And uh, the heart is the master of all of that. The heart is the mind, the intelligence, and the spirit in general Chinese medicine. And one of the alarming things, actually, if you look down the bottom there, you'll see two images um, of, that represent love. And the one on the left has the image of the heart at the center. You can see that right in red. The, that is the, the more classic uh, character for love. The more recent character for love has excluded the heart. And I think it tells you a lot about our modern culture and, uh, and our relationship to each other and the universe. So here's a really interesting little character. On the left is the, the, the symbol, the character for music. And, but on the right is the character for medicine. And what's different between the two of them is on the right, you will see at the top there, these two little look, fork-like figures. Those little figures represent shaman, male and female shaman. So the work of the shaman is to create music in the human heart by creating balance. And we'll talk some more about some of the mechanics of that. And so what is the model that Taoists have of the way the world, universe works? And so this lays it out very nicely. There's a lot of information. I'm not going to go through it, but I'm going to go through the key principles. Essentially, the bottom line is that the nun becomes the one, becomes the three, becomes the 10,000. The nun becomes the one, becomes the three, becomes the 10,000. So what does that mean? Well, the nun is the time before the experience of the space-time continuum. It's the, it's the wilderness before the dawn. They call it the hontun, the wildness the unknown. You know, I often I, I listen to what my patients are telling me and 
just this week I've had several people say to me, you know, I had this experience. I, it was terrifying. I felt as though I was looking into the void. I was going into that movie theater and I had this panic attack and I don't know why. And they realized, oh, you, it was dark. It was the void. This is where we came from and it's also what terrifies us most. And we'll talk about that. So the nun, whatever that is, the doll that can be named as not the doll, becomes aware of itself, that the male sperm uh, enters the female ovum and becomes alive with that spark of life that we just saw. And then it starts dividing. And it divides into two, right? We learn that. And, and then it divides in four and six. And so it goes from, the, from being a yin-yang, the two, right? To the third potential, which is both of those, the yin-yang, right? And then the yin-yang gem- generate everything that's in the universe. And they do that through the expression of energy and relationship that is characterized by the, um, the, by the hexagrams and by the elements that we'll be learning about, and further manifest in terms of earthly branches and animals and organs. And so you literally could spend years and years and years and years exploring this remarkable uh, cosmology. And over here you'll see that essentially it breaks down into three levels that we're going to talk about now. The first level is the level of the earth. The second level is the level of um, the person, the early heaven. And the third level is the level of heaven. And so these can be recharacterized. And here's another very complicated. This is from Heimer. This is a, a diagram of Chinese uh, cosmology. Pretty complicated. Everything, all of the 10,000 things, i.e. all of everything, fits into this cosmology and its relationship to everything else can be understood that way. I love this. The cosmos lies in your hands. The 10,000 transformations are born from yourself. So when that moment, that spark of the universe enters us, we capture this capacity to be all things and simultaneously, and that's from a book on alchemy. We are stardust, truly, that is a true statement. How do we manifest that? So the diagram I just showed you, if I took some lines and drew them out, maybe I'll do that one day, actually looks very similar to this, which is the Egyptian tree of life. And it also looks very similar to this, which is the Kabbalistic tree of life. And the Sumerian tree of life would look the same. What on earth is going on? All of these cultures are producing similar diagrams and ways of explaining uh, the relationship of things in the universe. So, let's go back to that thing about the earth and the early heaven and the late heaven. Um, This is called the three treasures. Okay? The three treasures. There is the Jing, there is the Qi, and there's the Shen. Uh, A number of many years ago, I was actually trying to get privileges at the world's largest surgical hospital to do acupuncture. I was working as a palliative care physician and, uh, and no one had ever applied for privileges for, to do acupuncture. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take this on. And I, they told me that I would be reviewed by the surgical committee. And we went through, every month I would meet with them and they would ply me with questions. And then Dr. B, who was an elderly, esteemed general surgeon, said to me, so, sir, he says, you need to explain and make me understand chi before we can move any further. <laughs> At that point, I said, Dr. B, I will gracefully withdraw my application. 
because you know it's really hard to capture these things with words right what we can do best at is describe their relationship more than the words and so this is really the starting point of the starting point of chinese medicine is the yin yang right we just talked about that um, but the next step is understanding the three treasures and what they do is they describe the relationship between the earth ourselves and heaven and so you can actually, and, and once again, you know, the alchemical text, they, they pictured exactly the same thing. Basically, earth, humans, and sun, right? Here's an old Chinese uh, from the golden, flower of the golden elixir, and on the right is another alchemical text, once again, showing exactly the same relational patterns. So here's a more contemporary version, and I think it really does a good job of explaining what Jing, Qi, and Shen are, Right? So Zheng basically is like the, the, literally the wax of the candle. It describes your inherent capacity, your energy store, your kind of the, the potential that you bring into life. And that potential is determined by your karma, by your parents' karma, whether your mother was drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, whether your mother was very young when she had you or very old. Um, basically decides how much of this vital stuff do you have to work with. In other words, is your candle very long and big, burns for a long time, has great lots of flames, or just a little one, right? And so, you know, when I work with a patient, I see somebody, if they're going prematurely bald or gray, and that tells me maybe, you know, not too much yin, you know? Not always, but, you know? When I see somebody who's 80 years old and has got black hair, right? Like one of my teachers, I don't know how old he is. I can't figure out. And then he says, oh, I, you know, I was doing this 30 years ago. And I said, well, but you only look like you're 20, you know. And he has dark hair because he's zheng. And so the goal of the, we have a certain amount of zheng, and we also want to be able to use it wisely as we burn the flame. And so the flame is the energy that comes up and manifests in this plane of existence like the flame of the, of the candle, right? And so how we use that flame, if we turn it right up, let it go like a blowtorch, right? Partying, you know, promiscuous living, not sleeping, working too hard, we burn, we burn up our store pretty quickly, right? And that's why we see people drop dead, you know, when they do extreme exercise. I get very worried when I have some of my patients who are exercising really hard. It's not good because they drop dead. I think about that guy that wrote that running book. What was his name? That's right. Yeah, suddenly, just guy was running marathons and he dies. What? I actually saw a, a sign outside the CrossFit down in uh, down in Jack London Square. It said, "He hasn't killed you yet. Keep going." <laughs> you know. So we have to use. You know, we use our jing. We we burn that flame really uh, with some wisdom. We don't waste it on unnecessary, fruitless things, right? And we also use practices to retain it and bring it back like qigong and we eat the right foods and our shen is the light that comes out of the flame it's the illumination okay it's the illumination it's the it's the it's that thing that you see around saints when they have that halo right it's that ah oh, okay manifesting our true potential that i am both the candle wax but i am also this exuberant endless limitless light and, you know, once again, you look at all these traditions, they all have the same thing. So I actually have almost identical uh, stupa like this at home. 
And basically, the stupa in Tibetan tradition also has three levels. There's the foundation, the zheng. There's the path, which is the qi. And there's the result, which is the flame, right? And uh, in the middle, of course, they have these five Buddhas. And we're going to be learning about the five shen and the five, five spirits and the five elements. So all these traditions are coming together. And if you look at the character for zheng in Chinese, uh, what it actually represents is rice, which is growing in a pot with a little bit of cinnabar added. So the jing is like the rice in the pot, and the cinnabar is actually mercury and sulfur. And it's a symbol in, in alchemy because it can be both, and if with, with, with wisdom and skill you can extract the yin and the yang, the dark and the, and the white, out of the cinnabar. And the, 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 the qi, or C-H-I, as I said, is actually the rice cooking and becoming uh, as being cooked, right? And there's an image. And here we see, um, here we see, oh, there's the rice in the pot, I believe, and it's, it's beginning to, to move up. And then finally, the shen. The shen represents an altar. Um, earlier versions of this image, actually on, the, on, the le- on your left, actually was um, three strokes which repre- represented heaven, earth, and the, and the, unit, the stars, um, but now it represents an altar. And on the right is a rope that is extending up to heaven with a ladder that is climbed by human beings as they extend into the sunlight. So let's see if this next slide works. And if, if it doesn't, what I'm going to do is paraphrase Joe Campbell as you watch the image. Okay, so it may be a little disjointed, but let's hope it works. It, it is ecstasy. The trance no dance, doubt. for example, in the, in, in the Bushman society. Now, there's, there's a fantastic uh, example of something. Um, the, the little Bushman groups. I want you to think about that uh, image of a rope of great, extending great up into heaven that you just saw. Uh, the, the male and female sexes are, uh, what we say, in, in a disciplined way separate. The, the men have a certain field of uh, concerns, their weapons and the poisons and the hunt and all that. That's and the, the women have a certain field of That's concern, bringing up the children, the nourishing of the children, so forth and so on. Only in the dance do the two come together. And they come together this way. The women sit in a circle or a little group, and uh, they then become the center around which the men dance. And they control the dance and what goes on with the men through their own singing and beating of the thighs. What's the significance of that, that the woman is controlling the dance? Well, the woman is life, and the man is the servant of life. The woman is yin, uh, and During the course of this circling, circling, it's a very tense style of movement the men have. Uh, Suddenly, that one of them will pass out. He's entranced now, and this is a description of an experience. When people sing, I dance, I enter the earth, I go in at a place like a place where people drink water. I travel a long way, very far. When I emerge, I'm already climbing. I'm climbing threads. I climb one and leave it. Then I climb another one, then I leave it, and I climb another. When you arrive at God's place, you make yourself small. You come in small to God's place. You do what you have to do there. Then you return to where everyone is. You come and come and come, and finally you enter your body again. All the people who have stayed behind are waiting for you. They fear you. 
you enter, enter the earth, and you return to enter the skin of your body, and you say, that is the sound of your return to your body. Then you begin to sing. The Utum masters are there around. They take hold of your head and blow about the sides of your face. This is how you manage to be alive again. Friends, if they don't do that to you, you die. You just die and are dead. Friends, this is what it does, this ntum that I do, this ntum here that I dance. This is an actual experience of transit from the earth to through the realm of mythological images to, to God or to the seat of, the, uh, of power. It becomes something of the other mind of us. It is exactly the other mind. And, and the way God is imaged, God is transcendent, of, um, finally, of, of <laughs> anything like a name of God, as the Hindus say, beyond names and forms beyond Dhamma-rupam, beyond names and forms. No tongue has soiled it. No word has reached it. But Joe, can, can Westerners grasp this kind of mystical, trans-theological experience? It does transcend theology. It leaves theology behind. I mean, if you're locked to the image of God in a culture where science determines your perceptions of reality, how can you experience this ultimate ground? that the shamans talk about. Uh, I wonder what he answered. So uh, I just think it's a truly remarkable image of what I just described. It's right there, and this has been the tradition of healing and healers throughout time. And for the Kalahari uh, indigenous people, they didn't have specialized healers. They were all participants in the healing. The woman with the yin and the men with the yang, co-creating the dance and the music that they ascended the ladder to heaven and then returned to the underbelly to be re-envisioned and reignited by the spirit of the healers of each other so um, I think really remarkable so what is alchemy and of course that was the title of this talk um, alchemy it can, it has many many names it actually is derived from alchema which is actually an Egyptian term um, which describes blackness and the art of blackness and transformation, and that actually describes the pupil of the eye, right? And of course, the, for the for the Egyptians, having a large pupil, belladonna was very considered to be very attractive and appealing, right? And that, so that's where the word comes from, and it has different meanings that there's been changed. We'll talk about that, but ultimately, it's about how do we manage this transformation and this movement of material matter into spirit and then back again, right? That's what alchemy is. Very good. So um, in the Chinese tradition, there were two kinds of alchemy. There are two kinds. Um, the first is external alchemy, which is basically the use of metals and external substances, medicines. And the idea was that these, by their inherent nature, would transform your own energy. Um, the trouble with this approach was that actually a lot of people ended up dying because they were using things like cinnabar with mercury and other things. And it wasn't good for your career if the emperor died as a consequence of your medication. Um, so um, it kind of went into disrepute, although there is still external alchemy and it still has a place and a value. Um, of course, the bigger the problem, the bigger the nature of the disease, the stronger the nature of the alchemical remedy, right? 
So, but uh, NADAN or internal alchemy um, really describes the, the way we use our own selves to manage our own life's energy, our own zheng, our own qi, our own shen. That's internal alchemy. All right? There is no other golden elixir outside one's fundamental nature. You are the medicine. That's the message here. You don't have to go to doctors and whatever. You are the medicine. All human beings have the golden elixir of the flower complete in themselves. It is entirely realized in everybody, and I would add, but not realized by many. Okay? So, just really quick, this is an example of internal alchemy, moving this energy within our own energetic system, which we'll talk about, managing it yourself. And, of course, this is the same image. We see this in the Euroboros. This is the image from alchemy. But actually, every tradition, every tradition across the planet, you can't go anywhere in any ancient tradition and not see the Euroboros, which is the snake swallowing its own tail. And this is the internal alchemical process of working with your own jing and your own qi and your own shen. And Paracelsus was really the father of alchemical medicine in the West, but he didn't get much support. He said exactly the same thing. He said medicine is not only a science. There's nothing wrong with the science. Please understand me. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with allopathy. I'm very happy that we have those available to us in certain circumstances. But he says it doesn't consist of compounding pills and plasters, but it deals with the very processes of life which must be understood before they can be guided. So our Paracelsus was really just a a kind of a reincarnated Taoist healer, right? Or maybe even a reincarnated uh, Kalahari healer. He was talking about the same things. So the goal of the medicine is to actually help us ultimately experience our destiny, manifest our destiny. As I mentioned, Lonnie Jarrett, one of my teachers, his really groundbreaking book for the West was Nourishing Destiny. Really remarkable book. And so um, here's, uh, here's a comment that says, he who compromises the greater destiny becomes part of it. He who compromises, comprehends only the lesser destiny is uh, resigned to the inevitable. And so what this says is it depends on you know, what, what is our image or our imagination of what we are capable of. If we simply see ourselves as machines, machine men, living in machine times, driven by algorithms, then that is our destiny. If we see ourselves as stardust made manifest in this material plane, everything is possible. And so that's part of what I'm going to talk about now. Um, It's not about going to heaven, it's actually growing to heaven by working with these energies. And I'm sure, and for, for Suda, probably in Ayurveda, I'm just telling everything she already knows. You just package it differently, different words, but it's the same. You know, and Tibetan medicine is the same. So um, this is out of place, but this is our shaman image. This was supposed to be back with Joe Campbell's talk, but here are the shaman, and there's the male and the female uh, on both sides, the yin and the yang, and there's the earth, and there's the heaven on top, and there's the ladder of the soul that the shaman travels with you in your journey towards healing. So, let's get down to some nitty-gritties, some pseudo-technological understanding. So, I'm going to talk now about the five spirits and the five elements. Because it's all very well, me talking about, you know, this Taoist philosophy, but, you know, what does that help you when you've actually got a frozen shoulder? Right? Well, some people would say, actually, if you're just a realized being, you just by giving good intention, you'll heal it. You know, that's what Jesus did, right? 
but most of us aren't that developed. You know, even six years of medical school doesn't get you to that point. So we need a technology. We need a technair craft, right? And so these are the five spirits and the five elements. And what you can say basically is that they li- they express our relationship across two planes. Um, the first plane is the vertical plane, the movement between earth and heaven, which is a spiritual journey a transpersonal journey to something way beyond our own limitations. And the horizontal plane is the zone, the plane of living in the material world, and most particularly the world of relationships. And so when we're working you know, as a Taoist practitioner, you're actually very conscious about which level, which plane you're working at. Because sometimes you just need to work in the material plane, the horizontal plane. So when I had my shoulder done, Dr. Zhu was really just focused on the material, pl- the material plane, getting my shoulder to move. Now I recognize, actually, my shoulder was not just my shoulder. It was that critical point of energetic interface with my reality that was stuck. And where I decided to enter that experience was up to me, and the nature of the healing would be different. So as a healer, as a Chinese physician, I need to know, you know, where am I working and which, in which direction? And of course, the metaphor is obvious, the cross, right? I mean, it's everywhere, okay? It's not just in, in, in Western culture. And of course, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jing, Qi, Chen, right? Okay? It's too bad they had to make it all male, but that reflected the culture and the consciousness of the time, right? So um, what are the five elements? So we're going to start now on the horizontal plane. We're talking about the plane of physical interaction with ourselves and with the universe and with others. And so uh, these are the five elements, fire, earth, metal, water, and wood. And uh, they're called sometimes the five elements, sometimes the five phases just like a season. There are five seasons in, in the Chinese understanding of the universe. So we, in our house, we always actually, we recognize five seasons, and we see spring, early spring, coming actually much earlier than our Western calendar. And I think you could also call them the five perspectives, the five ways of relating to things. And so each of us as human beings are primarily one of those elements. Just like, you know, the there's trees that are wood element and there's rivers that are water element. Human beings, we all have primarily one element. And we may have a secondary element inside that, but mostly we're one element. And that element really describes our relationship to things. So let's, let's go with one of these elements. Let's go with, a, uh, let's go with earth, okay? Because the yellow emperor. The yellow, so earth basically describes... Soil. It's the experience of being the soil, of being the person, the being that actually nurtures things, right? Think about that. None of these elements is better than any other. Without any one of them, the universe would stop. We're all manifestations. So what is it about it? So the goal is not to change. You can't say, well, I don't want to be on earth anymore. I'm going to go to see Dr. Duffy, and I'm going to actually work on becoming a fire, because I think fires have more fun. You know, a lot of fire people, and they're always having parties, and they're dancing, singing. So, you know, I'm going to go be a fire. No, you can't do that. Sorry. Okay? You can't say to a tree, well, I'm going to work on you becoming. That's not alchemy. Alchemy is a skillful management of your own energy, right, to create balance. So 
So we begin to suffer when we're out of balance in our primary element. So if you're too much overexpression of earth, think about the soil that feels that its only response, its only thing it can do is feed the plants. That's all it's good for. And it's only valued or determined by how well the garden is growing. And so it's always worried about, was this tree going to be growing? Is it getting enough food? Is this plant going to be happy, right? Well, guess what? Well, it doesn't feel very good, does it? Because in human terms, that what that means is that you end up becoming codependent. You end up becoming full of everybody else. Right? Codependency, I am too of me to be so full of you. So, so we then always giving, right? And always worrying about, am I enough for this person? Uh, can I give them enough food? You know, oh, I just uh, I hope I'm going to be worrying. Am I going to be good enough at work? And people going to be happy with me? And you know, not very comfortable. And if you're underexpressed, Earth, the opposite. It's like a desert. There's nothing to give. I have nothing to give anybody. I have no interest in anybody's concerns or problems. I'm just about myself. See if I can survive. Right? Very different. But actually, two parts, sides of the same coin, right? So, so this manifests in my office as a ruminating, worrying person who's full of everybody else's problems and is married to an alcoholic. All right? Yeah. Okay? And the depression is it's like really uncomfortable and it's, a lot of it's in the head. And, you know? Okay? Very different than somebody who has a metal element, and we haven't got time to go through that. And this manifests in our physical form. As you see there, the spleen and the stomach are the organs associated with the earth element. And so people with this, ten- this pattern, if you're an overexpressed earth, you're likely to get diabetes, pancreas and spleen, right? Um, you're also likely to have trouble with movement. You're going to gain weight because earth doesn't move much, does it? It's quite stagnant, right? could have stomach problems. I, I can tell you, I can look at a patient's chart before they even come in my room, and if they're old enough, I can tell you what their primary element, just by their medical complaints. It's harder if they're 18 and they've still got enough zheng that they can just burn the candle literally at both ends, and they haven't, pay, and they haven't paid a price for it. But if you're old enough, I mean, I'm seldom wrong, and it ain't complicated. You know, people think, oh my God, he's genius. He's like, no, it's just really, you know. Okay. So, and all these things have relationships to each other. Okay. So there's the mothering relationship and there's a controlling relationship. So um, the mother, the earth feeds the metal, right? That's where metal comes from. It comes from earth, compressed, right? And the cauldron of the earth. And so earths actually get in relationships with metal. They really feed them. Metal's kind of like that. Right, but Earth controls water. So if I if I get a relationship with somebody as a water element, they're going to feel like I'm controlling them, just like a river bank controls a river, right? And you don't even know what's going on, right? And then if you put two livers, two woods together, green one, not that's two generals in the same house. That's not good. I remember um, several years ago, I was working at this really high-end residential place, and, and families would come out, and they'd visit for five days, and, and I would be given 30 minutes to meet with the families during their five-day stay. And uh, it was almost impossible to really do anything in 30 minutes other than give information. Um, but I had this, lady, this person who was really unhappy in her marriage and, and just miserable, and, and we talked about you know, 
how that had been and how long it had been like and, and was she always miserable and she said no I used to be happy um, but it was after being married for a while that my depression set in and her husband came in and he started talking and it immediately became clear to me he was a general and she was a general but she was now being suppressed by him because he was a stronger general than she was and she was angry and she couldn't express it because she didn't feel safe because he was a stronger general so she'd internalized that into her own depression and sense of helplessness and so what I did in 30 minutes said let's figure out a contract about how two generals can live in the same house and forgot about, you know, they moved on. And about a year later, somebody came to me, a visiting uh, therapist who was coming to visit us, and she said, you know, so-and-so told me that I needed to let you know that what you said in that session has changed her life and saved their marriage. I said, what did I say? She said, oh, yeah. She said, now we know how to get on with each other and just accept we're two generals. And if you have two generals, then you need two armies. Right? (laughs) And it, it works. It's amazing. I think you could actually have a you could actually have a field of five element family therapy would work really well, and I, and I you know there is five element psychotherapy and I do that all the time, and it's all relational, and this describes the relationship of the elements. So different organs are related, and actually the time of day is reflected. Um, is man, each, each organ and each element is more expressed at a certain time of the day. So one o'clock, between 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning, your wood element expresses itself, and that's when the general shows up. And the generals are there to solve problems, to f- win battles. And so you think, uh, maybe in your, yourselves, you wake up at one, 2 o'clock in the morning. That's, wood, that's because your wood energy, energy is so strong. It's bursting through, right? Looking for solutions. You often start sweating then because that's, that, that energy okay, is, is really strong. It produces all kinds of movement and sweating. So, and here's a breakdown of all the different associations between these elements. Uh, it affects our way we, what, what we like to eat and taste. It affects what kind of tissue. So, for example, my shoulder pain, uh, governed by, by wood energy, what governs the tendons, uh, and so when the Dr. Zhu put a needle in, called that a 34, he was really accessing my tendon energy and releasing that blockage because pain in Chinese medicine is just blocked energy. So we haven't got time to go through this. There is a book by John Kirkwood. John Kirkwood. He has two books. One's called Five Seasons. John Kirkwood used to live up in, uh, up in the peninsula. He now lives in Australia. These really interesting, helpful books about what this means for your life. You can help you understand why it is that you like vet salads and your partner likes uh, lamb, for example. It's not because you're just... No, it's actually... This is an intuitive thing. We can actually base our lifestyles on which kind of element we have. And there's also a book called The Power of the Five Elements by one of my teachers, Charles Moss, The Power of the Five Elements. And the back of that, there actually is a questionnaire that you can do, and you can kind of figure out. It's not always, I mean, even experts, quote-unquote, will disagree with each other when we both examine the same person, we'll say that's Leo. Because you can see that cycle, right? It's really, sometimes if someone's really, 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 really out of balance, they can actually look like they're four-level relationships downstream. But actually it started because they were out of balance with metal, but it looks like they're having trouble with their Earth, that was started 20 years ago with their metal getting out of balance. Okay, so uh, I'm going to go quickly. Um, then this, I think this is a helpful slide. Um, this is called 
the nine heart pains, right? The nine heart pains. And this is what we might call the curriculum of life. And so in the, in the Taoist tradition, we show up in life um, to get lessons and teachings in each of these nine areas. And depending on our own karma, they would suggest that we are showing up in the school of life to figure out whichever one of these classes we failed last time around. Okay? And you can think about your own life. Okay? And some areas we're really good, and other areas we really suck. You know? We're stuck. So this can really be helpful. You know, it's actually even psychotherapy can use this. Okay? Doing great on your, you actually on one level your career looks great, you're getting recognition and all that. But another level, you're not being able to really be creative in what you're doing. Okay, um, so we're going to come back to that. So, full catastrophe alchemy. So the the message that I would have you think about is that really the alchemy is about how do we work with all of the stuff that life brings us, right? The Buddha said, the first noble truth, life is suffering. How do we work with that reality? And how do we work with it skillfully and transform that into something that supports our own development, the manifestation of our Shen, right? Without getting stuck in the Qi level or just burning out our Zheng and never getting past first base. Peter Levine, many of you may know Peter Levine is the father of somatic therapy. Um, I paraphrase him when I say, when we move from fixity to flow, then we can pursue our destiny and not our fate. So what's the difference? Our fate is what life brings us. You know, My fate was that I was going to lose my hair. That's not my destiny. My destiny is how I choose to relate to that. My fate is that I get cancer. That's not my destiny. My destiny is how do I work with that blocked energy to support my ongoing spiritual development. And having worked with... <coughs> cancer uh, patients, cancer survivors at MD Anderson, I began to realize and see this all the time. That, you know, really the way in which most people actually pretty much know why they get cancer. And more often than not, it's because I didn't do that. I got stuck around that emotion, right? And even if they say, well, I smoked cigarettes and I got sick because I am shameful that I smoke cigarettes, right? So learning how... What Peter Levine does with somatic therapy is he works with people in their bodies to identify where things are stuck and then to help them to move through it. And the idea is that the trauma is not the actual event itself, it's the energy getting stuck within your energetic body. All right? I'm going to go through this quicker because we're going to run out of time. So these are the, the meridian. All of you have seen this image, and it looks like most of you have had needles stuck in some part of that. These are called the primary meridians, and, uh, and so there are 12 of them, and they equate with those 12 organs that we saw earlier, right? It all fits together in like a nice jigsaw puzzle. And so one way of understanding this, which I think is very helpful, is that we have essentially three sub-circuits. Um, I'm going to do that. Let's talk, before we do that, let's look at, this is a wonderful quote. Traumatic symptoms are not caused by the triggering event itself. They stem from the frozen residue of energy that has not been resolved or discharged. This residue remains trapped in the nervous system where it can wreak havoc in our bodies and our spirits. So that's what we're talking about with these energetic circuits, right? When an energy gets stuck, the movement of the flow of energy is impeded and it like a, gets dammed up. 
and it starts causing all kinds of consequences that we then see eventually um, in our labs as inflammation or you know a hot spot on a scan, pain in your shoulder. Okay, and so there are basically three major circuits in the primary meridians. There's the survival circuit, and basically this is just meeting the basic demands of being alive. It's about it's about ingesting energy and letting it go. Right, large intestines, lungs. Our skin is our barrier to the outside world to keep us safe. The stomach, we absorb things. Okay, the spleen, we help to uh, absorb them and to nourish them. And then the heart and the kidney, which you'll see is that actually the heart and kidney are all three of the meridians in, in my view. Because the heart is the central and most important aspect of what it means to be a sentient being and being a human. Everything passes through the heart. And if you are not creating music in your heart, then it'll come out as disjointed kind of jarring noise that is really disturbing and actually produces disease. The next circuit is the interaction circuit. How do I get on with you and I and they and them? Right? And this is our kidney and our bladder, our heart again and our small intestine. And we haven't got time to go through all of these, but you know, there's 365 points in these, these major primary meridians. And so we have an acupuncturist here, and she could tell us if, where every one of those points are. And if this was an examination, she'd have to tell me the name of the point. And then if this was a Taoist examination, she'd have to tell me the spiritual meaning of that point. So you can access this and say, well, this is just a survival thing. This person is having trouble with um, asthma, and we need to open up their lung energy. Well, you could also say, well, this represents a dysregulation of their metal element, and they're really struggling with issues around trust and letting go of the grief, right? Which is what breathing is. So, and then finally, there's the differentiation or individuation circuitry. And this is your gallbladder, your wood, uh, your liver, sorry. This is the general. I'm different from everybody else. I don't need to be part of the tribe. It's not good enough to be just a part of the tribe. I want to be my unique individual person. And so I think that's why really it's kind of in some way this weird way of America and the West are actually the salvation of the Taoist tradition because we've actually, as de Tocqueville said, we've reached the West Coast and we have nowhere else to go. So we have to start figuring it out. And so that's why we like, we've kind of, you know, we need to figure this out because there ain't anywhere else that we can run and hide. Um, so, in that space between subject and object lies the entire history of human suffering. All right. So, what is this? What I put this up is that what I would suggest is that at this level of interaction, we enter in the field of dualism. We enter into the field of you and me, separateness. And when we enter into dualism, we create. We enter into conflict. And when we enter into conflict, we enter into dysregulation. And then we enter into suffering. So uh, these horizontal planes are really one of the major... They are the, the plane of suffering and disease, right? Both literally and figuratively. So now I'm going to talk about the, the, the other five spirits. So there's five elements and five spirits. And this is the vertical plane that I talked about earlier. Remember that? And what gets a little confusing is that, you know, my understanding is in Chinese language, the same word can mean different things, and a lot of it's dependent on the context. It's relational. So we use the similar words, um, at least shen, hun, yi, po, and zi, which represent water, metal, earth, 
wood and fire. So this represents our evolution across the vertical plane between the dark, unknown, chaotic wilderness that preceded us before we became aware, entering the planetarium full of darkness. What's going to happen next? Moving up through into through life and into the experience of transcendent experience. And so each of these has its own characteristics. So if I'm working with a patient, <coughs> part of what I'm doing is, am I working at the level of the elements or am I working at the level of the spirit? And so the level of the spirit is really more around um, relationship to the other, not to each other. Does that make sense? In other words, it's our spiritual experience. And so uh, we're going to go through these real quickly. These are actually on the website, so you can, you can see them. I'm not going to go through. This could take hours to go through. But each of these has their own characteristics. And when somebody's in my office, I'm actually thinking, where are they actually, where is their soul residing? Is it residing in their, the water, in their Z, the will, or is it up in the Shen? I very seldom see people. I mean, Dalai Lama, I think one experiences him as being living in the level of Shen, right? But actually, as I'll talk about in a moment, he's both Shen and Z. He's both water and fire. He's the whole thing, right? So what's interesting, again, is that, you know, you look at other traditions. Um, in Suda's tradition, they don't have five, I guess. You have seven. Um, but actually, you have two that couple of squashed together. So, so we actually, they are very similar. And this is from the Tibetan um, Perspective, and this is Joe Luizzo's work um, in a recent article, um, 2.16. Really the same thing, and even goes down to looking at some of the physiological characteristics that are correlated with each of these levels of spirit. This is a, the Cloud Mountain drawing of the... This is Kunlun Mountain, and Kunlun Mountain basically is a representation of the ladder of the soul. Starting down in the water, down in the dark space down here, Sorry, out of the light. Um, and then moving up and through into the, the misty parts of the mountain, which is the metal. And then moving up into the fertile plains, which is the earth, the yi. Moving up into the forests full of greenery, okay, bursting into life. That's the wood, right? The hun. And then moving up into the shen, the sunlight, sitting on top of the mountain. And you can, there's all these annotations. And literally, this can is your life map. You can use this as your own life map to spiritual and personal development. So we talked about Shen earlier. You saw that image. We saw the little bushman climbing the, the rope to heaven, right? Amazing. Isn't that amazing? Climbing that rope and then... This is the characteristics, the associations. And once again, you can go back to online uh, files of this. Um, at the level of fire, or the shen, fire is the element, the organ is the heart, the primary emotion is joy. We experience awareness, inspiration, insight, passion. Passion, right? Burning. It's like, oh, no. you know? The manifestation of the flame. We have the experience of our true self. In the cosmology, it represents starlight and lightning, and the virtues of compassion and love. And the symptoms that you have your shen disturbed or that you have trouble with sleeping, you feel anxious because you're dysregulated. Where am I? I'm out in the universe somewhere. I'm sunshine. What do I grab onto? I may become depressed if my shen has gone out, right? Burnt, 
burnt wasteland. Too much fire burns away the wasteland. My heart may have palpitations. I look like I have ADD, mania, right? So mania is considered to be a disorder of Shen. I may lack inspiration. I may be disorganized. I may have a sense of who I truly am. Be incapable of self-reflecting because I'm just so out there, right? Sounds like a manic person, right? It's just, wow, this is great, but man, it's disorganized, right? Not very productive. So we can go, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go through all of these. This is, but this is the Han, and this is the energy of wood, and the liver is the organ. And it's to do with vision. It's to do with knowing your true self again. The cosmological association of the clouds. And if you think about the clouds up there, halfway towards the top of that mountain, right? Think about it as you watch clouds. They have free and easy wandering, right? Wu Wei. They just kind of go. You don't say clouds saying, ah, I'm not moving anymore to the west. You know, I've moved too far to the west. I'm going to stick right here. The clouds move with the energy of the universe, right? And they're always changing and creating these amazing figures. The, The Hun energy is that movement just before you get to the top of the mountain. Right? And if you have disturbances within your hun, you're depressed, you have sleeping problems again, get angry. Because anger is the primary emotion of liver. You can become erratic. You may lose your self-confidence, become very self-doubting. It's called zhui-yin type, right? You lack purpose. And you. Um, the primary need of wood is to have justice, all right? Things must be just. And so the archetype or caricature of a wood is an over-opinionated civil rights lawyer, right? It's not saying it's bad, it's just what it is, okay? Um, once again, we need every kind of element because that's how the universe stays balanced. And then year is the middle ground. Year is the spiritual pivot, the axis between the underworld, the dark waters beneath the mountain, and the, the po, which is the mist, moving up. And then the spirit, the yi is the pivotal axis, and really it's where our intention is shaped and held. What is our intention? How are we going to use this energy? And we talked a little bit about earth element on the horizontal plane, and you know, there's similarity. These are very similar. It's challenging to, for me, at least. I mean, I'm just a novice, but it's hard sometimes to know where my where is the deficit is mostly at the level of spirit and was along the, the five element plane. They're very they're similar, but not quite the same. Okay, so in a poem I'd mention is that emergent. It's like the mist. It's the, the life force coming into existence, but very attached. Think about mist. It's really attached to the earth, right? This symbol actually stands for white bones of death, right? And so at the level of the Po, we're really working around, do I let go of the connection to whatever I'm coming from and do I let move into whatever's coming next? And so Poes often have their primary challenge emotionally is with grief, uh, working with grief. And uh, these are the, some of the associations and correlations Gemstones are the are the cosmological association because gemstones represent the, really the embeddedness of the energy, and so you know if you have a if you have an energetic imbalance long enough, it moves from the surface deeper and deeper and deeper, and then it actually lives in your bones, and so actually your bones then hold your energetic imbalance, and it's kind of hard to change that, right? Yeah. So um, 
That's the power. We could talk for ages and ages about this. We don't have time. Uh, metals can be, sometimes be seen as kind of too sharp and direct. Overexpressed metal cuts people off. Very opinions. Either this way or it's that way. Either I, you're with me or you're against me. I, you know, they're often appealing to some higher sense of justice. This is the right way to do things, right? And if it's not done this way, then well, it's wrong. So they can be seen as being inflexible. You know, your, your pious church deacon or someone like that who's following all of the principles, the rules. That's the way it's supposed to be. And if I break these rules, who knows what will happen? I'll basically plunge into the, the darkness of the void where there are no rules. So I need to hold on to these ones really hard. Okay? The Z is the will. And once again, we see the image of the heart, right? You see the image of the heart at the bottom with the. But actually what's growing out of it is the plant. All right? So the, this is where, at the water element, at our deepest level, where our will, our drive to manifest ourselves as sentient beings emerges. And uh, so the good news is that that's really powerful and energetic. The bad news is that it's dark and there ain't no rules down there. This is the wilderness. All right? And so often working with people in my office, you know, that's where they're coming to see me. They've descended into the wilderness. And this is where suicide happens. Because if I can't experience who I am, then I am dead. And there's terror, and fear is the primary emotion, right? But at the same time, these people at this level have the capacity for great leadership skills because they have this willpower. They can pull people along. So you see there's always these two coins to the Sides to the same coin. Okay, so and so the meridians that remember we talked about this other meridians, very different when we're accessing this this level, this plane. And here we're talking about the extraordinary meridians, curious meridians, and this is a cross-sectional view of this, and this is um, from from the front. And so um, they run this kind of really weird, chaotic pattern, and they take they take points from various other meridians. And so some practitioners will only work at this level because they say if you fix, if you, if you balance the soul, then everything else will take care of itself. Okay? Um, we look, very interesting, right? The extraordinary Amurians look a lot like the caduceus, the snake coiling up as the spirit, the soul begins to ascend to heaven. All right, so just I'm going to just show you two points here, just so you get a flavor of what of some of the symbols are that you might be working with as an acupuncturist. This is uh, heart four, and you can see where that's located. Okay, it's located down here. And so when we access heart four, we're saying that what this point does, it refers to the path or way of the spirit. It is the job of the emperor, who resides in the heart, to lead the people in the way of the Tao. To do so, he needs to know what the way is. So often, we and our patients become overly wrapped up in the law of mundane things, the temporary gratifications of the ego, like money and sex and power. Uh, we lose our way. We become anxious and worried and preoccupied about things that are at best transient and impermanent. This point illuminates the way back to the one path that satisfies our real needs and guides us to our next step. Pretty cool, right? So when we put a needle in there, ah, the path becomes manifest to us. People will have that experience and say, I don't know what just happened, but I think I can see a way forward now. Right? Maybe this is what Dante needed when he, he was in the, the dark woods, right? In the middle of my life, I came to the place in the woods where the way was not wholly known to me, and then 
I'll do heart four. Ah, that's the part. Right? Pretty amazing, right? But you could also just say they can use it to work with people that have heart problems or blood pressure problems or many other conditions on the, on the, on the parallel, on the horizontal plane. Celestial countenance, small intestine, 17. So this is one of the number of points called the windows of the sky. And the idea is that these points, these energetic central processing units, mediate our ability to have a vision beyond our own temporal plane, material plane and allows us to see the pure from the impure. Because the small intestine in physiology actually is responsible for actually absorbing the good nutrients and letting the bad ones just keep going to the large intestine, right? And that's energetically what it's doing. So it's basically helping us to separate the wheat from the chaff. It makes the decree of heaven manifest to us and opens us up to a new vision and empowers us to move on. Ah, I can see, the vi- I can see where I'm going. There's that place in Hawaii that I always wanted. Now I can see it. I always imagined there was a place and I should save up my money to go there. Now I can see That's the place. It's right on the beach. It's going there. Okay. Now it's worth working hard. It's worth giving up so that I can have that vision, right? Okay. So I'm now going to move in just five minutes, talk about kind of just a few thoughts about how we actually work as in, in Chinese medicine in terms of diagnosing people. Anybody who looks and knows it is called is to be called a spirit. In other words, this is the person, the physician, who just you walk in the room and they they just know. They don't have to ask any questions, you know. Uh, I think about Dr. Yeshi Dondon in Dharamsala in, in India. Dr. Dondon is close to a hundred now. He still sees more than a hundred patients a day. I've been to his clinic. Um, Dr. Dondon spends just a few seconds with people, but they keep coming. You know, I know that if I just spent a few seconds with my patients, they wouldn't come back. <laughs> you know, but you know, because he is—he knows who they are energetically because he's a pure mirror. He's not. There's no blockages there. He doesn't. He's wise. He just sees things as they are. Ah, oh, disrupt. You know, there's a blockage in the gallbladder. Just okay. Anybody who listens and knows is called a sage. That's psychiatrists. So we're sages because we listen, right? We listen to the stories, all right? Anybody who has to ask about things is called an artisan. And anybody who feels the vessels and knows it is to be called a skilled workman. So I'm not sure where you put allopaths on that list. I don't think they actually even make it to the list. Anybody that uh, asks, you know, does 100 tests relies on some other technology to come up with some numbers and then goes to a textbook and sees what that pattern means. Um, you know, it doesn't make, he doesn't make the, great, you know, the list of, of skilled practitioners. So here is a physician. I love him. He looks so, I like to go and see him as a physician. And his patient looks... She's, she's probably a, a metal element, right? She has a very white complexion. She's kind of a... You know, Looking a little wistful, all right. And uh, he's probably an Earth. Look, he's looked, got that yellowish hue to his face. Yellowish Earth, all right. So anyway, he's taking her pulse, and so the tradition of pulse taking is not limited to to China, of course. It's practiced in other traditions. They Ayurveda, Tibetan medicine, and uh, I. And so the, the, this is a remarkable practice, and so. I'm a you know, very, very simple practitioner. Um, 
my teacher who I work with. Um, so we, we work with about 15 different pulses. So when I was at medical school, I taught, you take the pulse and you feel, is it regular um, or is it irregularly irregular or is it regularly irregular? <laughs> and then it was, how fast is it going? And, and then if you were really good, I trained with the world's top diagnostic cardiologist. Uh, he actually remarkable. He used to travel the world just impressing people by his ability to diagnose from the bedside. But he wouldn't, I mean, his pulse taking was very simplistic. That was all it was. Was it collapse, a collapsing pulse? All right, that was another one. Huh? But when, when I, so in the Shen Hammett, and there's different schools, the Shen Hammett technique, which I'm trained in, we have about 15 pulses, and each one has 28 characteristics. And that's just starting. So if you take 18, 15 pulses, 28 characteristics, you've got a lot of computations, right? A lot of permutations. And so we won't go through this, but when, I'm, when I take somebody's pulse, I literally am entering into their energetic space. And I can actually feel by the characteristics of each of those pulses what's, what's happening with that wood element, what's happening with that earth. Okay? What's the relationship to each other? I'm supposed to be even t- able to tell whether they've ever got divorced whether they have cognitive problems, whether they have mitral valve problems. I mean, one of my teachers, he took somebody's pulse and said, oh, you, have a, you have a valve problem, you have aortic valve problem, you need to go right to the emergency room. And they said, no, you're crazy. And he said, you have to go. And he sent him to the cardiologist. The cardiologist said, no, I'm not going to do it. Eventually the patient demanded, and sure enough, he had an aortic valve which was about to rupture. It saved his life. So this is incredible. My teacher says that I'm supposed to be spending 45 minutes on my, each of my patient's pulses. 45 minutes. Okay, that's how sophisticated it is. So, you know, when I go to see my Tibetan physician, he doesn't speak to me. I go in there and I put my arms down. He says, yeah, your back's not doing too good, is it? You know? Yeah. Work's pretty stressful right now, right? Yeah. Not sleeping very well. Waking up at 3 o'clock? Yeah. He knows, he knows everything about me. This is my energetic record right here, right? So I do that with all of my patients. I take their pulse, and often they're surprised, and I'm surprised by what we discover. And uh, it's a very powerful experience to actually take someone's pulse. Take your own sometime. Just spend some time experiencing it, listening to what it's telling you. Okay. Your ears, we can look at your ears. And so, remember we said, remember that the image of the sun and the moon and the earth 108 times each other? Well, it's because everything is a microcosm, everything is a holograph, everything else. The universe exists in a single cell. It exists in the mitochondria. So everything's just a matter of scale. And so our ears, so our ears within the human ear, we can see the human body. So I think you can, there's the skull down the bottom there. Can you see that? Let me see if I can move that. There it is. You see that? And there's the spinal cord, right? And there's the arms and the legs. And so, literally by looking at somebody's ear, I can actually make a diagnosis, and that's why people put needles in people's ears. Um, So um, that's another way that we can diagnose. I can look at people's faces, and I can see everything in their face. There are people, particularly in Korea, that actually just use one finger, or one bone of one finger, as their diagnostic tool, right? And that's all they work with. Because, you know, I mean, you can work with the sun or you can work with the cell. It just depends what you're trained to look for, right? 
And it's, I think it's easier to look at the whole body than one bone and one finger, but that's what they like to do. I guess everybody's looking for their own angle, right? Um, and then your tongue is a strong indicator of the energetic balance within your system. And whether you have too much heat, whether you have too much dampness or stagnant energy, whether you have too much stress, too much fire, too much stagnation, these can all be ripped. Have a look at your tongue sometime. All right? One of the things that always amazed me when I was an internist is like, I look at people's tongues and I realize I was not very good at telling if people were anemic. I mean, some people you could really say, oh, but this person's got a really low hemoglobin. Other people say, gee, you know, they look really pale, but the hemoglobin's like 14. No one ever explained that to me. Now I understand it. Okay? And we can look at the bottom of our feet, of course, right? So this is reflexology. All right, so we're going to end up right now. Just two quotations. At 15, I had my will bent on learning, the Z. At 30, I stood firm, the Po. At 40, I had no doubts. At 50, I knew the decree of heaven, my Ming, my destiny. At 60, my ear was an obedient organ for the reception of truth as I was receiving the Shen. At 70, I could follow what my heart desired without transgressing what was right. I think that's just a wonderful description of a life well lived, and unfortunately most of us get stuck somewhere up the top there, if we're lucky. Most of us are still at like 15, right? Exerting our will, no matter what. Okay? Even though life keeps pushing us back. And I'm going to finish with this one. And I was almost made this the first slide, but I, I think now you might appreciate it a bit more. I think this just captures the, the remarkable energy of, of Taoist philosophy and Taoist medicine. It's enlivening. I, if I could go back many years and speak to my divinity master at that school, I would quote this to him, and then I'd follow up with a two-hour lecture about Taoism. That the, we are simply part of a greater energetic system we call the universe, and that we are part of that universe, and when we attempt to separate from it, and both we and the environment that we are living in are put into imbalance and begin to suffer. And we live by the sun and we feel by the moon. We move by the stars and we live in all things. And all things live in us. And we eat from the earth. And we drink from the rain. And we breathe of the air. And we live in all things. And all things live in us. I think that's just such a wonderful description of the Taoist philosophy and relationship to life and, uh, and the nature of the medicine, which is an ecological medicine. It's a growing medicine that's always changing and adapts to the needs of whatever culture. And I'm really excited that it's finding root in this country, in this consciousness, because <coughs> not only do we as a species need this way of relating, we, our planet desperately needs this if it's not to get rid of us. All right? We should eat the sun and breathe the moon. All right? So thank you very much, and that's a very quick overview. I thank you for your patience. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.